we'll get used to that song as we sing it. It's a beautiful reminder that God has got a promise for us. You may have a seat, and uh, if you don't have a sermon outline, I'd like to ask you to lift your hand, and these kind gentlemen will make sure that you get one this morning. We come again to the great little book of Micah, and we're going to be looking at Micah chapter 6 and going with um, verses uh, 9 through verse 16. So turn your Bible, turn in your Bible to Micah chapter 6, and we'll be going to verses 9 through 16. This morning, the title of the message is The Tremendous Cost of Disobedience. When I was a young person um, sitting in this room listening to a man named Pat Cronin preach, Pat Cronin is now with the Lord. Uh, a couple of years ago, he had a heart attack and went home to heaven. But when Pat Cronin was a very young seminary graduate, he was on staff at our church and he was preaching. He had three sons and uh, he said, I tell my boys, sons, you may think that you get away with sin, but let me assure you, and this is what he said, that you never ever, 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 never, ever, you never, ever, ever, never, ever, 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 never do you get away with sin. He said, there is no sin that slips by God's attention. There is no sin that does not have a consequence. And he declared so clearly that we are people who give an account and who reap the trouble of our sin. Now, this morning, we come to a passage of Scripture that continues in this great book of Micah. And for those of you that are new this morning, we always do a, a simple review, and it's not just for those who are new, but for all of us, so that we can remember and learn the key issues that are here. So help me out as we do this. The review there at the top of the page, the prophecy of Micah, three prophecy cycles. This little tiny book has three prophecy cycles, and they all center around two key words. It is is God's what and what? God's judgment and His mercy. We've said over and over again that the Bible, excuse me, the Old Testament certainly does have God's judgment, but we also see over and over again that His mercy is overwhelming. The setting is this, that the people of Israel are in rebellion and have sinned against God. Let me, let me remind you that much of the Bible is the story of God's redeeming us back to himself. That's the story of much of the Bible. From about Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, all the way through Revelation, the vast majority of it is God in the Old Testament showing who he is, and God in the Old Testament showing us who we are not, that we're not holy and that he is going to send a redeemer. He's going to send a Messiah. And then in the New Testament, we see that Messiah comes, and that Messiah fulfills all of the promises that God had made to send a Messiah who would save us. And this is part of that picture that you have sinned against God, and you need 
a rescue. And so we see in the first cycle, there's three cycles. The first cycle, destruction and regathering, that's chapters one and two. And then second cycle is doom and deliverance, what the nation of Israel is going to go through because of their sin. Remember, these are God's people. We're not talking about all the pagan nations around Israel. We're talking, this focuses on God's people. And he cares about them enough and he loves them enough to bring judgment upon them so that they can see who he is and they can see who they're not. Look at the third cycle, and this is where we are in our study, the denunciations. In fact, we call these the indictments. The denunciations of Israel and yet God's salvation. And we see that chapters 6 and 7 is where we're going to be. We've already looked at the first denunciation. Do you see where it says God's indictments? God's indictments. The first one we looked at a couple of weeks ago it was Genesis 1, or excuse me, Micah 6, 1 through 5. And then we saw Israel's reply, which was Micah 6, 6 through 8. That's what we studied last week. Well, now we go back to the indictment again, and we are looking at chapter 6, verses 9 through 16. So look at the screen there in front of you. Just, I want you to see where we are this morning, that we go from God's indictment two weeks ago to Israel's reply, because that's what it does in the text, and now we're going back up to the second indictment of God accusing Israel, God condemning Israel for their disobedience. Now, much can be gained from this. Last week we saw this, and the last couple of weeks we saw these things. Notice here, the Lord declares his case against Israel for breaking their covenant with him. He had a covenant with them, and they break it. Look at the next statement. Despite God's repeated provision and rescue, they sin against him continually. That's what they've been doing all this time. And then notice the next one. We saw this last week. Instead of sacrifices of appeasement. You remember that? They kept offering sacrifices, offering sacrifices, offering sacrifices. And finally, we see God saying, what? If, if you bring a calf, if you bring a perfect calf, you, you bring rivers of oil, you even give your own child... Is that, is that what you want? Just, are these sacrifices of appeasement? That's not what I want. The sacrifices to God are a broken and a contrite spirit, Psalm 51 says, and that's what we see God calling to them. God desires humble obedience from the heart. Remember last week we said that very often even this present day and time, you may not bring a bull or you not, may not bring a goat or you may not be tempted to bring some type of, of major sacrifice that would be something that you would physically bring to God, but we sometimes think by coming to church that we're appeasing God for the sins of the week. Or that we sometimes think that we are giving up something in our life and this is going to appease God for that heinous thing that I did that nobody else knows about. Or that everyone else knows about. But the sacrifices to God are not a sacrifice of appeasement, but a humble and a broken heart. And that's what Micah is calling the people to see. Now, I want us to take just a moment and look at this deeper context as we come to the tremendous cost of obedience. And um, this is the first time I've ever kind of used this heading, a deeper context here. And for some of you this morning, this is going to be one of those things that helps you understand much of the Old Testament. 
that you've kind of missed before. Sometimes I'll give a timeline, and many of you have said, man, it's really helpful when you give that timeline that shows us the, the various um, works of God through individuals from, from uh, Adam to Noah to Abraham to, you know, as we work down through God's God's storyline there. If you're new to studying the Bible, just, just keep listening, just keep looking, just keep looking to the Word and listening, and as time goes on, you're going to learn more and more, and what seems overwhelming, you're going, to, you're going to start to understand more, and I just want to encourage you with that. Pray for God's help with that. But in this deeper context, I want you to see this, that over for over 700 years before Micah's prophecy, before he would write what we're studying, God's law was given through Moses. And so many of you remember that Moses led the people of Israel out of what, what country of bondage? He led them out of Egypt. They come through the wilderness. And because of, even after leading them out of Egypt, and they sin against God and worship other gods and, and keep getting tripped up, they, they go through a long period of going through, the, wandering in the desert, and then God is bringing them to where? He's bringing them eventually to the promised land, of land flowing with milk and honey. And he's seeking for them to, to learn to obey him, to see who he is, to see what he wants. The fact that he is given a law so that we can see his holiness and we can see our unholiness because time and time again, they cannot even keep the most basic of the instructions. So the law is the instructions of how to worship God and how to live. So that's given. Notice this in the next line. The Mosaic law and covenant are seen in the book of Deuteronomy. Now they're also seen in, in Exodus and parts of it in Leviticus, but we, here we see deutero means a repeating and of the nominee, the nomos, which is the law. So this is the repeating of the law. It's part of the first five books of the Bible. Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and what? Deuteronomy. So this is the Torah. So in this book of the Bible, we see that the law is being given, and that's the lion's share of the book. Look at the outline that I have on the outline here. The Deuteronomy 1 through 3 is an introduction in speech 1. So there's three speeches. The first speech is, keep the law of God. Right out there to the side, history. He goes through a little history reminding them of everything that has happened and everything that God has done. And he's saying, keep the law of God. He has delivered you. He's with you. Remember him. Don't forget him. But look at the next part. Look at the big section of Deuteronomy. Chapter 4 through chapter what? 28. So here we go with 24 chapters of the law. Now the others are just a few, just a handful. But here, the, the lion's share of Deuteronomy is the law that is to be kept. And you see that there. It's the law that is to be kept. And then at the end of that, in, verse, or in chapter 28, we see it is followed by the blessings for keeping the law and the curses for not keeping the law. Notice there, Deuteronomy 29 through 30 is speech number three, covenant established. And the covenant is established, but then it's broken. And there's a future hope, even though they break it. Now, 
If you or I were God, you might say, after I did all of that, and then I give them the law, and I repeat it, and I, I share with them, and I have different servants teaching it to them, and if they mess it up again, that's it. It's all over. I'm going to get rid of them. But that's not what God does. We see that there is even a future hope. We see that God is patient and kind and merciful in the midst of every bit of this, especially when we think, consider his great holiness. Now, I want you to go to Deuteronomy. I want you to go to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Remember with me, it goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. On my Bible, it is page 171. have no idea which one it is in your Bible, but look for Deuteronomy. It's a nice big book back there toward the beginning of the Bible, and go to Deuteronomy chapter eight or 28. I'm going to give you just a minute to find it because I want you to see this. Now, this is one of those times when I remind you that it's really great if you have an ESV Bible when you're here, either ESV or New American Standard, just because it's so close to the translation that I'm using. I'm, I'm preaching out of the ESV. Um, if you don't have one, you can buy one in the bookstore. Don't go do it right now, but um, it would be a good idea for you to have one, at least for while we're in here. I realize you may have another preferred translation, but this helps us, quote-unquote, be all on the same page when it comes to the wording of the translation. If you're reading from a very different translation, sometimes it can be confusing, especially when we read longer passages. So I want to encourage you to do that. But notice here, Deuteronomy 28. What does it say in your Bible above Deuteronomy chapter 28? What does your subheading say? Okay, I heard several different ones, obviously. But something like the blessings of obedience. And then we skip down to verse 15. What do you see there? The curses of obedience. Now look on the screen or on your outline and notice there that we're looking at Deuteronomy, that section, chapters 4 through 28. So all of the Deuteronomy, nearly all of Deuteronomy before this, chapters and chapters and chapters have been the instructions of the law. So when we hear about the law, when we hear about the Ten Commandments, and when we hear about the ceremonial law, when we hear about the sacrificial law, when we hear about all of the instructions or what they're to do. Did you know that if you have a teenage rebellious son that there's instructions here on what to do? Some of you are going, okay, find that for me. I, I, I'm looking. Um, there's some here when there's marriage and there's death and there's, there's an issue. There, there, there's some here that when there's an accidental death versus a murderous death. There, there's, there's numerous different instructions here of the law of how to live life, what to do, how to approach honoring God in this life. And so the law of God is given. And notice here with me, I love these verses. Look at the blessings of obedience. In chapter 28 and verse 1, it says, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, in all of that's just been shared, everybody look, if you, and if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I have commanded you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all of these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. And if you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall, be, shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. So your cities are going to be blessed, your, your fields are going to be blessed. Look at verse 4. 
Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, and the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Verse 5, blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. So that idea of your, your bread, your ability to make bread, one of the basic staples of sustenance of life. Your basket, so that's the basket of wheat or the basket of flour and the kneading bowl. Look at verse 6. Blessed shall be you when you come in, and blessed shall be you when you do what? When you go out. Look at verse 7. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. Now, I love the image of that, don't you? They're going to, they, they think, yeah, we're all going to attack right here. And they, you know, they come in, they come charging in to that city, and then what happens? <laughs> Every, seven different ways they are escaping. So I love that. Verse 7, they're going to come at you. Look at verse 8. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and all that you undertake. And he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself. Now remember with me, the word holy means set apart. That's simply what it means. Not like the rest. When we say God is holy, it means that he is not like the rest. Now the ultimate description of holy is God because you can't get any more different than creator versus created. So as creator, he is different than all things. But in his perfectness, and his holiness, he even is bringing us to be holy, to be different than the rest. So look at verse 9. The Lord will establish you as a people holy, set apart to himself, as he, will, as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and do what? And walk in his ways. And all the people of the earth, verse 10, all the people of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord. And they shall be afraid of you. Why? Because they're wicked and this is, this is, they're against the heart of God. And God is saying, I have a people and it's my desire for them to see that they are part of the powerful, holy, true God. Verse 11. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of the ground and within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. That's the promised land. Verse 12, the Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, and get to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. I love that. The Lord will make you the head. Anybody want to be the tail? Y'all know what's near the tail, right? We want to be the head. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail. And you shall only go up and not down if you what? Obey the commandments of the Lord, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command to you today, to the right or to the left, or to go after other gods to serve them. So here we see this, this pretty descriptive picture of what God is going to do for those 
blessings of obedience. But then we see the curses of disobedience. And I want you to notice with me, how far do the curses go in Deuteronomy 28? Just look at it. Ah, yeah, I hear you, right? And this gives us a little hint of what God knows is going to happen. This gives us a little hint of where this is going. And this, this, this is beautiful. This is beautiful because it's showing us the tremendous consequences of leaving the God who is holy and right and just and true and, and going off in our own affliction and in His love and in His mercy, He will judge that with the intent of bringing His true people back to Himself. Look what it says in verse 15. If you, if you have a Bible, you may want to circle this word, first word in verse 15. It's a very important word. What is the first word in 15? But, but, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and do what? And overtake you. Curse shall be you in the city and curse shall be you in the field. Curse shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Curse shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and, increase of, and the increase of your herds and your young of your flock. Verse 19, curse shall be you when you come in and curse shall be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds, because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering in to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with, look at verse 22. You may want to make a mark out there to the side because we're going to see it again in just a minute. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation, and fiery heat, and with drought, and with blight, and with mildew. The Lord shall pursue you until you perish, and the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth shall be like iron, shall be iron. Verse 24, the Lord will make the rain of your land powder, from dust, from heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Now, we don't have time to go through all the way to verse 68. But what we see here is that God is saying there's a, there's a very certain beautiful blessing that will come from obedience, and there's a very certain tragic, and horrific curse that's going to become from disobedience. And so when we get 700 years later to Micah, we start to see much of the language here in Micah after 700 years of ups and downs with a lot of downs of disobedience. In all of this time, 
the God of patience and the God of mercy and the God of salvation is showing us how great and patient he is that he strives with his people and he is continually showing them their wrong in their disobedience. So notice with me as we come to this this morning, as we come past that deeper context into we see Micah chapter 6 verses 9 through 16. See if some of this doesn't sound familiar as we go. Look at verse 9. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it, is sound, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod, circle the word rod, hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Now, the rod is an instrument of punishment. Rod is an instrument of correction. And so here we see that the Lord is appointing this correction. Look at verse 10. Here's part of the indictment. Here's part of the accusation. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and a bag of deceitful weights? You see, these are, these are little tools that they use to cheat each other. So when somebody comes into town and they're saying, hey, I need you know, some barley, or I need some wheat, or I need, I need a bit of oil, or I need this measure of something. They have something that's supposed to be a certain weight, but it's really not. And so they're going to give you less, because they're not going to go traveling around carrying measuring weights to check you. They can't do that. So they have to trust your measuring weights. And your measuring weights are deceptive, and that's called stealing. That's called cheating, and that's what God says is unjust. That is not just. I am true, I'm generous, honest, that's what God says, and you're to be like me, but no, that's not what you're doing. You have, verse 10, you have treasures of wickedness, the whole idea, there's been found all throughout Israel in archaeology, there's, there's little gods, sometimes a little calf that was made, it has a tiny piece of silver over the top, and little, little, things, little pieces of silver on the legs of the calf, and they were like lakish gods or other types of gods from a surrounding people, and sometimes they're mixed in with the artifacts that are found with the Hebrews. And so what do we start to see? We see that there's a dabbling of other gods. There's a dabbling of wicked treasures. You see that, verse 10? Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? In the scant measure? That's the false thing there. Look at verse 11. Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and a bag of deceitful weights? Verse 12, your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Verse 13, therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate. Why? Because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. You shall be, you, and there shall be hunger within you. And you shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. 
Verse 15, you shall sow but not reap. You shall tread olives but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes but not drink wine. Flip it over. Verse 16, for you have kept the statutes of Amri and all the works of the house of Ahab. You have walked in their counsels that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. What do these verses mean? Look at verse 9 with me back on the other side. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it's sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Verse 9, God continues his indictment. So this is a continuation that we saw a couple of weeks ago as he is pointing out why he is judging his people. Now, look at that first, nine, first line there in verse 9. The voice of the Lord, that capital L-O-R-D, you remember that stands for Y-H-W-H. That is literally how it was written, and we put in some vowels to that to say Yahweh. And we explained before Christmas how that gets turned into Jehovah in certain older translations. So it's the same thing, but it's the translation of God's personal name. Write that out there to the side. If you're not familiar with that, that is God's personal name. We see that God's personal name is being invoked here. For the voice of God's personal name, Yahweh, cries to what? To the city. And what is the city? The city is Jerusalem. It's the capital. And listen to this. If any city should be a holy city, it should be Jerusalem. This is where the temple was. This is where God touches down at Moriah. This is where we see the salvation of God coming to his people, to Abraham, and then to Moses. We, we see this beautiful picture that is to be fulfilled in the temple of the ceremonial law, all of the workings of God through his people, through his nation, but yet it's not a holy city. It's a city that is bound with wickedness, and it takes a little country preacher named Micah who's not in the city, and he includes part of the indictment against the nation from out in the countryside aimed at the city. Notice this with me in the second line. And it, sh and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Now, this idea of sound wisdom, wisdom, sound wisdom. In Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10, notice what it says in Proverbs 9 verse 10. This is on the screen in front of you. The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. Now look at verse 9 and what it says. It is sound wisdom to do what? To fear your name. Do you see that? Look again at Proverbs now. And look at Proverbs up on the screen. Let's read it out loud, out, out loud together. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Keep going. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So here we see that, that Micah is declaring it is sound wisdom to fear the name of God. But that's not what the people are doing. You see, they are operating in a worldly wisdom. Fill that in. They're operating in a worldly wisdom instead of the wisdom of God that they have been given. And so because of that, 
Look at the next line that is there in verse 9. It says, hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Now, this is very, very important for you to understand in the process of reading the Old Testament. You see that God has a rod and he uses it. And it's not just that he's using it on the pagan nations around him. In fact, we see very little of that in comparison to what we see him do with his own people. And it's important for us to recognize that this is an instrument, look at these three words here, this is an instrument of judgment, of discipline, encircle it, correction. You see, for his people, all of his judgment is aimed at correction. If you're not his people, it's just painful and it's just rejection. But for, your, for his people, it is for correction. That's what he's doing. And I've taken the time to put these verses on the slides. I want you to see these. This is a a very important listing of verses, and I want you to get the point from this. And um, I want want us to read these. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 5. Deuteronomy 8 and verse 5 says, So know in your heart that just as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord, your God, does what? Disciplines you. Psalm 94 verse 12 says, blessed is is the man you discipline, O Lord, and teach from what? Your law. You see this, this idea of the law and discipline, they go together. He's training you. He's correcting you. Look at Psalm 119 verse 75. This is one of about five verses I shared last fall. Several of you were amazed at the theme of these verses in Psalm 119 that God is actually bringing about good things when he corrects us, when he spanks us, when he, when he comes and he injures us in order to get our attention and to teach us to look to him. Look at Psalm 119 verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous. That means they're good. They're not bad. They may hurt. They may not feel good, but I know that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have what? You have afflicted me. Oh boy, this isn't prosperity gospel. (laughs) Proverbs 3 verses 11 through 12, look what it says. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord, and do not loathe his rebuke. Why? For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, as as does a father the son in whom he delights. These are hard truths, but they are beautiful Look at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Why? Because none of them are perfect. There's going to come multiple times in every person's life that the Lord uses pressure, the Lord uses pain, the Lord uses things around us to get our attention, to grow us. And this is why we would say that Romans 8.28 is so beautiful, for we know that all things work together for the good, for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. God is working through all things. Look at Revelation chapter 3 and verse 19. Those I love, I what? Let's read Revelation three nineteen. It's on the screen in front of you. Those I love, I rebuke and discipline. 
Therefore, be earnest and repent. Now, notice this list that is on your outline. It goes from Deuteronomy to the Psalms to the Proverbs to Hebrews in the New Testament to Revelation in the New Testament, and we see that the Lord Jesus, there's many different type places in, in the Scripture where the Lord Jesus references this either directly or indirectly, that the Lord knows how to deal with us. And it's in His mercy and His grace that He judges us, His people, and He brings them to recognize who He is and who they are. And then we go on to verses 10 11 and 12. Look at verse 10 over there in your box on the page. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? The scant measure, that's the, the cheating measure. It's like, a, it's like a, an extension, you know, maybe you, maybe you sell uh, something that's measured by length, and instead of it being really 12 inches, it's only 10 inches. So you pull it out, it's been adjusted, you know, they can't tell because they don't have one with them. And you pull it out, there you go, three feet, there you go. And you're, you're actually getting less than that. The scant measure that is a curse, verse 11, shall I acquit the man with wicked scales with a bag of deceitful weights? That's, that's the weights of measuring. Verse 12, another one, your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Let's look over to the right-hand side. Verses 10 through 11, this is guilty of dishonesty, violence, and lying. These things are expressly against the heart of God. Over and over again, we see in the Scripture that God hates wicked weights. He hates those things that are made to deceive. He hates the tricks that are used to defraud. We see that in this, the scant measure is a false measure for cheating. Go read Deuteronomy 25. You remember that's back before 28. That's back in the law. And we see that it states there that he hates it. In Amos chapter 8, we see that he hates it. Proverbs 11, he hates false measures. And then look at verse 11. Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful tricks? Here's the idea. If God forgets their wicked treasures or acquits the wicked, he would be an accomplice. If God just lets it go, then God is entering into their sin. But God doesn't let it go. You see, if he was an accomplice, then that, accomplice, then that means that he is not just. But he is just. And so he always judges sin. There at the end, uh, in, in verse 12, you see, your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies. What is this about? Notice on the right-hand side, the rich men full of violence. Here's the idea. You gain wealth by murder. In fact, there are several places where the, the word that is used here of violence, it is murderous. You are murderous. And so the idea is by, by calling out that you're, you're wealthy or you're rich are murderous, the inference here is that you are coming and murderously gaining your wealth. So this is, this, this is kind of running the gamut from the simple little cheat that you do that nobody even knows about to the, 
to the grotesque sin of murderous theft and everything in between. The guilty of, they're guilty of dishonesty, violence, and lying. Well, look at the next one in verses 13 through 15. Here's what's going to happen. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate, making you desolate because of your sins. Verse 14, you shall eat but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you, and you shall put away but not preserve. Put, put out there to the side, you'll, you will save. You shall put away. That means that you're putting away for a rainy day. You're going to save, but it's actually not going to be there. Or, you know, my... My grandmother used to can things, and, um, you know, they had a big garden up in North Carolina, and they would make all these cans. In fact, our, our family chat kind of showed a picture of my grandparents standing there um, with a whole wall behind them of canned goods. Have any of you ever done any canning before? You, you've done canning. Some of you have. I mean, it's kind of cool. It's a, it's a lost art, apparently, Tommy. No, hardly anybody raised their hand, right? So... But it's a cool thing when you have really good homegrown vegetables and fruits and all that that are wonderful, and then you carefully go through the canning process, you cook it, and you seal it and all that kind of thing. But occasionally, grandmother would go out there, and she'd get one of the preserves, and she'd get it, and she'd open it up, and what? It hadn't sealed. And so you give it to the five-year-old, an apricot, and he's drunk a few minutes later because it's fermented, you know? I mean, he's like, man, this tastes weird. Kind of like it, you know, whatever. And, you know, the kid, whatever, or grandpa's over there, oh, yeah, give me that one. I'll take that, you know? So, you know, the, the picture is it, it, you put it away, but it rots. That's, that, that's part of what God is going to do. He's going he's to confound them. He's going to get in the way of them. You shall put away but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. So the idea is, so whatever does make it and you've preserved, you've got a big silo of wheat or you've got a big silo of this or of that or whatever it is, that the enemy is going to come and they're going to overtake your town and they're going to haul off your crop that's been saved. You see, God can bring judgment any way that he chooses to. And we saw that uh, throughout the, the history of Israel that he often uses other nations to get their attention, to judge them. Look at verse 15. You will sow but not reap. You shall tread olives but not anoint yourselves with oil. Tread olives. What does that mean? You remember that's, that's running around in the big olive press. You, you, you would squish them down with your feet. That's part of the idea there. They would often do the same thing with grapes. You, you mash, you clean your feet real good, and then you go and you mash the grapes, and then outflows from that the, the wine. But here he says, you're going to tread olives, and you're not going to have any oil to anoint yourself. You're going to tread grapes, but not drink wine. See, verses 13 through 15 is another picture of God's judgment will bring them low. God's judgment will bring them low. And he's going to do it through illness. I won't go into detail, but that statement up there in verse 13, making you desolate because of your sins, that, that actually is, is a term of illness and it has to do with dysentery. And so you, you, you're going you're gonna to eat food, but it's not going to stay in you. You're going to pass off all of the nutrients. You're still going to be hungry. 
You're going to be sick. There's going to be, econ- do you see the list here? Illness, economic trouble, enemies will pillage. That means they're going to come take by sword what you've, what you've either grown or what you've stored, what you've preserved. Now, all of this is because they are so fighting against God. They're not obeying Deuteronomy chapter 4 through 27. That's the reason the curses come. And what an appropriate wisdom verse. That's what Proverbs is. It's wisdom. Look at the box there on the page. Proverbs 26.3 says, A whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. A whip for the horse. Every, Every horse has to have a little encouragement to go where you want him to go. Every donkey has to be led. They don't, just, they don't just listen to verbal commands. You have to snap them in the, on the rear with a whip, or you have to have a bridle in their mouth. And for the fool, it requires a rod on his back. Are we a fool? Are you a fool? Let's look at verse 16. This is the end of that indictment. And here we see it. For you have kept the statutes of Amri and all the works of the house of Ahab put out there to the side. Those are two wicked kings. And you have walked in their counsels that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. Verse 16 out there to the side, utter disobedience of God's people. That's what we see here. Instead of following God's law, they're following the wicked laws. Do you see that? Amri and Ahab? Right there at the top, first line, you, you keep the statutes of a wicked king, but you don't keep the statutes of the one who parted the Red Sea and saw you through. You keep the statutes of those who hate God, but you won't keep the statutes of the one that made manna show up on the ground, and all you had to do is walk out there and pick it up. You didn't even have to grow it and harvest it and process it and cook it. Oh, the wickedness. Not only did they keep the wicked law or the laws of wicked kings, but they did the work of wicked kings. Look what it says, second line, in all the works of the house of Ahab. So they enter in. You can go back and you can read about Amri and Ahab. And then look at the next one. And you have walked in their counsels. This is, they walked in the ways of the wicked kings. So they follow after their hearts instead of the way of God. Now, just remember with me as best you can as we see these keeping of the statutes, the works that are so unjust, the works that are so unmerciful, and then we see here they're walking in the counsels of these wicked ones. Compare that to last week, Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to do what? Walk humbly with your God. And that's not what they're doing. They're doing the opposite of that. They're walking with the world. 
Now, for those of you who are a little bored this morning with Old Testament history, I want to say lovingly, shame on you, start to clue in here. It's worth it. I, I, I want to lovingly say that. But, but let's just kind of go ahead and bring this down to here, right now in Hollywood, in South Florida, 2021. Friends, we can march to the beat of the drum around us that is against God. We can go with all of the thinkings and all of the thoughts, all of the wisdom of the world that is against the heart of God. Everything that God has said in His Word that is right and true and holy and just and good, we can trade that for the lies and the falsehood of the world around us, choosing our own morality instead of God's morality, choosing our own ethics instead of God's ethics. And the great danger is, is that we listen to the world around us and we get sucked into their thinking instead of remembering the holy and true things of God. This is a very real danger to us. One of the things that Micah is teaching us is that there is nothing new in human history. There's nothing new in the sin list. And whether it's the tiny little sins of Achan, burying a treasure in the tent concerning the whole nation of Israel, or whether it's the verbose sins of making a golden calf and hauling it up and exalting it, my friends, we as Christians must recognize that this word applies to us. That's the reason we study it. That's the reason your Old Testament history will help you see, listen to this, not only the judgment of God against sin, but the unfathomable mercy of God that forgives that sin. That time and time again, he looks at his children and he says, you are mine. Act like it. Think about that. That's what he calls us to. That I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so that you shall bear the scorn of my people. Now, notice here with me, so now God will wipe out all of their earthly hopes. And that's the picture here. He's going to wipe out all of their, circle those last two words, earthly hopes. So often when we experience the hardships of this earthly life that God has allowed to befall us, it's yet another opportunity to go deeper with Him that we would trust in Him and in Him alone. And the depths of God are so rich and so great, and His grace and mercy with it too, that He can teach those who are very wicked to walk in His ways, and He can teach the godly to go deeper still with Him. You see, He's going to give them over to be enslaved so that they can be taught not to sin. Two men were talking this week at men's boot camp, and they didn't know I was listening to them, but I was sitting there, 
and I was listening. Sometimes God gives me the ability to have kind of one conversation and be able to, yeah, you all do it too. Mothers are especially good at that. Um, but I was just sitting there, and it was very sweet. Uh, the two guys were kind of sharing about how they had come to Christ, come to faith in Jesus. It's okay to listen in on that. And one of them said, you know, um, for me it was really hard. I had heard the gospel and heard the gospel, and I didn't respond, and um, I went through many years of horrible addiction. And he said, I, I just wonder if all in God's grace, that was God's grace in bringing me low, so I would look up to him. He said, that's just kind of what it took for me. He said, my, my heart didn't receive the Lord until I had nowhere else to go. And I look back at all of that, and I say, His grace overcame all of my sins. Amen? See, number one, I want you to see this. Sound wisdom recognizes the fear of the Lord and the voice of His accusation. Sound wisdom recognizes the fear of the Lord and the voice of His accusation right out there to the side, verse um, 9. Remember, that came from verse 9. You see, letter A, a foolish person ignores the voice of God. A foolish person ignores the voice of God. But letter B, a foolish person scoffs at the holiness of God and his call to righteousness. That's what a foolish person does has no ear to hear his voice, continues to run. But God has a way of getting the fool out of us. In fact, it's, it's not, I mean, we see the purpose of the rod in Proverbs. It says the purpose of the rod is to drive foolishness from the heart of a child. Scripture very clearly says that. When a parent uses an instrument of correction, it's to remove the foolish little heart that's raging. And God has His rod that He uses with grown adults, too. Number two, sound wisdom recognizes the discipline of the Lord and the rod of His correction. Sound wisdom recognizes the discipline of the Lord and the rod of His correction. You see, letter A, a wise person turns to God when trouble comes, whatever the trouble may be. A wise person looks to God when pain hits. But a foolish person, letter B, a foolish person curses God when trouble comes. You know, the Scripture says that it's good that I wasn't rich, because if I had been rich, I may have set my heart on the things of the world and cursed God. Some of you wonder why you're poor. That may be God's great grace keeping you close to himself. Notice this, number three. Sound wisdom recognizes the futility, futility that comes from walking in rebellion from God. And we see that in this text. You're going to save and it's going to be lost. You're going to grow and you're not going to have it. You're going to store up and it's going to be stolen. 
God has a way of causing all of your little schemes of independence from him, he has a way of bringing them to nothing. He has a way of causing his children to look to him. Now, you can get mad about that, but it's not going to do any good. It's better to just say, okay, Lord, teach me. Number four, sound wisdom comes from one place. So we talked about sound wisdom in verses in number one, two, and three. So how do you get sound wisdom? Number four, sound wisdom comes from one place, repentance and faith toward God through Jesus Christ. That is how true wisdom comes. Not the counsel of the wicked kings, not the way of the, wisdom, of the world, not the wisdom from the world. You don't need the wisdom from the world. What you need is the sound wisdom that comes only from God, and there's only one way to have that. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. It's through repentance toward God. Look at Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 21. I want you to see this. The Apostle Paul is headed for Jerusalem. In verse 17 it says, Now from Miletus he, t- he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said. So Paul arrives, and this is his conversation with a group of leaders, elders in the church. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Verse 19, serving the Lord with all, look at this, underline it, with all humility and with tears, and look at the next part, and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. So in public and in private, from house to house. Verse 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of, look what he was doing, of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the goal through all of the struggle of a fallen world, through all of the struggle of a fallen heart, until we are made perfect and complete, standing before God without our flesh, tending towards sin, God is bringing us to him through faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. This is the great key to wisdom life. I want us to end with number five. Look at the bottom. Christ fulfilled and restored the covenant that we have broken. It's Christ who fulfilled it. It's Christ who restored it. He kept the law perfectly, and he took the law to the grave. He took the law to death, and then he rose again, completing the law, breaking it in the ultimate bond that it has on us in death. Look what it says in verse, or underneath number five. Only by faith in him can we find reconciliation and renewal that we so desperately need. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ and when we walk in faith in obedience, this is where all of the reconciliation that we have broken is restored. 
May God cause us to see the great glory of his mercy and his gospel, the fulfillment of all things in Jesus Christ. And may we see that we are called to live not to keep a law, but we are called to come and rejoice in God's grace. There's so much more. Let's stand together for prayer. Father God in heaven, our hearts are prone to wander away. The world is powerful and our flesh is weak. Lord, sometimes we just want to be angry. Sometimes we want to hold a grudge. Sometimes, Lord, we're greedy. Sometimes we're hurtful. Sometimes we're easily offended. Lord, we're not forgiving. Lord, there's so many different ways that we break your law. From the subtle things to the very obvious and grotesque things. And Lord, they're, they're all grotesque to you. Lord, I pray that this morning that we would look at Micah's words and that we would see, Lord, the call to obey. Lord, that we would not defend ourselves, but Lord, that we would run to Christ and say, my only hope is forgiveness, not arguing back. For Lord, if you should mark our iniquities against us, who could stand? Not one. Lord, I pray that the people of Sheridan Hills would live more consciously in your grace. Lord, that we would say no to the thinking of the world, that we would say no to the practices of the world that are against your heart. Lord, the things that the world thinks are so enticing and inviting and so enamoring, Lord, that we would be more enamored with you. Lord, I pray that we would not live for just our retirement, that we would not live just for the weekend, that we would not live for the accolades of the people around us because of our house or our cars or our little abilities, or our selfies. But Lord, that we would live for you. Help us, Lord. May we turn from the wickedness that we are prone toward. And may we say, Lord, take our lives and let them be consecrated, set aside for you. In Jesus' name we pray.